You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. So, you can look at your bulletin against the screen, too. We're going to be doing the scripture readings. So, first one is Genesis 1, 27-28. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then... Genesis 2, 24 through 25 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, this semester we've been going through a series on the subject of relationships. And my big uh, thesis has been that you were designed to be loved and to love. That's why you're breathing right now. You were made to be loved and to love, and specifically in four primary relationships. Your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with other people, and your relationship with the world. And uh, we've been talking about the past couple of weeks how to relate to other people. We've been talking about dating for the past couple of weeks, which has been fun. I expect everybody has been dating each other as a result of that. I know I've screwed up some of your lives, and I'm terribly sorry about that, but... um, uh, but tonight we take on a big topic, and that is uh, namely how to relate to people via sex. And tonight we're actually going to be using the PowerPoint. Um, <clears throat> that would be bad. Um, we're not going to do that. <clears throat> but as we kind of take this topic on, I, I want you to know <clears throat> I want you to know that I know that this is a sensitive topic. This is a topic that. Uh, is confusing, it's controversial, it's uh, painful, it, it triggers feelings of shame and guilt, and it's, not, it's also not lost on me that uh, I'm a man, and talking about this subject as a man is awkward, because men have, have uh, been responsible for some extremely egregious and heinous sexual sin in the world, and so I realize that tonight might be difficult for you for lots of different reasons, and I want to be sensitive to that. And in light of all that, I still, I still want to invite all of us to explore what the biblical vision of what sex is, because I really, I really do think <clears throat> that the Bible holds out a vision of sex that offers clarity and wisdom and hope in a way that I don't think anything else can. And I know that sounds maybe for you kind of like a ridiculous statement because when you think about the Bible and sex, it's easy to assume that the Bible's view of sex is just restrictive and oppressive and outdated. And so I want you to uh, explore the Bible with us and really to hear the Bible speak on its own terms. So that's why we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going back to Genesis 1 and 2 to look at God's original design for sex, how he invented it, as it were. And, And I hope that you'll be surprised with what we discover there. I want to I draw out three things that I think these two passages show us about sex. So here are the three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the fact that um, sex is a gift. It's the first thing we learn. Second thing we're going to learn is that sex has a purpose. And the third thing is that sex is a sign. 
Sex is a gift. Sex has a purpose. Sex is a sign. So let's take them one at a time. Number one, uh, sex is a gift. Uh, if, you, if you step back and think about the, the cultural moment that you're in, sex can be extremely confusing because you are bombarded with competing narratives about what sex even is. For example, on the one hand, you have the um, Andy Warhol narrative. Andy Warhol, as you know, is a famous artist, and he once said, quote, sex is the biggest nothing of all time, meaning sex is not a big deal. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's, it's just like a biological appetite that you have. You get hungry, you get thirsty. I mean, this is, this is kind of the, this is the narrative of the hookup culture. Hooking up with people, it doesn't really matter. It's like having a... It's having, like having a nice meal. It's enjoyable, it's pleasurable, but it doesn't mean anything. And that's sort of one competing view, is you have one dominant narrative that sex is not a big deal, it's nothing. And then on the other hand, you have the Woody Allen narrative. Woody Allen, famous filmmaker, he once said, quote, I don't know what the question is, but sex is definitely the answer. Meaning sex is not nothing, sex is everything. It's the answer to everything. It's the reason why you're breathing. It's, it's uh, a life without sex is not a life worth living at all. In fact, right here at UT, we have a whole week dedicated to celebrating it in the spring. We don't have any other week to celebrate. Maybe we do. I don't know. But it's, it's, we have a whole week dedicated to celebrating and to educating us about the reality of sex. In fact, if you think about it, we live in a cultural moment that is, ex this is the most unique cultural moment we've ever been in as like a race of human beings. Never before in the history of humanity has your sexual orientation been prioritized to such a level that it is, it is what you are. It is your identity. Our cultural moment has so prized and so elevated and prioritized sex, it defines you. It is your identity. If you don't have it, you don't have anything. So you got some people saying sex is nothing, it's meaningless. You have some people saying sex is everything. And into this cultural confusion in steps the church and makes the waters even murkier. <clears throat> because the church has a way of talking about sex in such a way that can, that can make it seem like uh, sex is a dirty thing. That sex is icky. Sex is shameful to even be talking about. In fact, my guess is some of y'all came up in churches that if sex even was addressed, if it was addressed, the only times that it was addressed, it was addressed with a list of do nots. Do not have sex before marriage. Do not look at porn. Do not masturbate. Do not hook up. And all of these lists were fueled with, with fear. If you do these things, you will get pregnant you will get an STD, you will ruin your future sex life, you will ruin your marriage. And so just for the record, I'm not, opposed <clears throat> I'm not opposed to warning people about the misuse of sex. The Bible does that. I think that's good. I think that's appropriate. But if that's all the church is doing, if that's, if that's the message that the church is giving, sex is this dirty, icky thing, and you better not screw it up or else it's going to ruin your life, we are way off course of what the biblical vision is. So, let's look and see what the Bible says. What is the biblical vision? What, is the, what does the Bible hold out for us? The Bible's going to say, not that sex is nothing, that it's meaningless. It's incredibly meaningful. It's powerful. But the Bible's also going to say it's not everything. It's not this ultimate thing. And the Bible's certainly not going to say that sex is dirty. The Bible's going to say that sex is a gift. 
Look, look at the passage that I just um, that you have in front of you. Um, <laughs> after God creates human beings in Genesis chapter one, what is the first thing that He commands them? The first thing. It isn't, "Hey, now that you're living and breathing, worship me." He doesn't say that. The first commandment is not start praying. Look at it. The first recorded commandment in the Bible is have sex with each other. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It's right there in front of you. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's essentially saying, I want you to make some babies. And wait till you find out how you make the babies. It's awesome. That's his first commandment. The first commandment to people in the Bible is have sex. See, this is a gift for you. In fact, I... um, there is an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to the subject of sex. There's an Old Testament book in the Bible, if you're familiar. It's a book called Song of Solomon or Song of Songs in some of your translations. And it is an erotic love poem celebrating the sex life between a married couple. That's what it is. In fact, I, was, I would plan on reading a couple of selections from it tonight. There are parts in that book that are so graphic in the way that they describe the man's body and the female's body, I felt uncomfortable reading it. I felt some of y'all would be uncomfortable reading it. I didn't want to read it, but it's in the Bible. The Bi- my point is the Bible is not anti-sex. In some ways, it celebrates it. It's like, let's write poetry about it because it's so awesome. If you've ever read through the book of Proverbs, the Pro- book of Proverbs feels safe. Oh, cute little wisdom sayings. <laughs> You get to like chapter 5 and chapter 7 and you're like, this is rated R. I don't think this should be in the Bible, but it's in the Bible. You get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul commands married couples to have sex with each other. It's not like, hey, it's a good idea, you might want to think about it. He says, you must do this. Here's my point. When people say Christians, religion, the Bible, if you sex is dirty, it's anti-sex, you just haven't read the Bible. The Bible from beginning to end is saying sex is a good thing. It is a gift that is given from the hand of a very generous God that wants you to enjoy it. That's the first thing I want you to see. Sex is a gift. It's a gift. It's a good thing. But let's take a step deeper. Sex is a gift, but sex also has a purpose. Sex has a purpose. And um, here's the thing. You cannot enjoy something unless you know what its purpose is. You can't really enjoy something for what it was intended to be unless you know what it was designed to do, right? And I used this example earlier in the semester if you were here when we were at, down the hall at Cox Auditorium, but like your iPhone is awesome for like texting people and checking Instagram. It's horrible if you want to use it as a hammer to hammer a nail in. That's not what its function is. Here, here in a little bit, we're going to have a ton of Little Caesars pizza in the back, and pizza is awesome when you use it for the purpose of eating, When you use it for the purpose of it being a Frisbee, it's kind of fun, but it falls apart and it sucks, you can only do it once. And so that's not its purpose. And so my point is that sex has a purpose. Sex functions the same way. You cannot enjoy enjoy something in the way that it was intended to be enjoyed unless you know what the purpose is. So what's the purpose? What's the point of sex? Well, biblically speaking, there are three purposes. Let me give you the first one. The first purpose of sex is is recreation. And we kind of talked about this in what I just said under point one of it being something that you enjoy. And I'm going to, 
I'm going to say a sentence in a second. (laughs) And I am not intending to be crass or crude, but I want you to think about this. (laughs) I'm just going to let the tension build. Why do you think you have so many nerve endings on your genitals? Again, I'm not trying to be crass. I'm just saying God didn't have to design your body that way. Sex could have been purely a pragmatic, biological, mechanical function in which you make babies that has no feeling whatsoever, but God didn't design it that way. He put a ton of nerve endings in those places because... He wants it to be insanely pleasurable. He wants you to enjoy it. One of the purposes of sex is just to enjoy it, to recreate, to enjoy the pleasure of what he has created. Our culture tends to stop at this point and say, it feels good, that's good enough for me, let's go. And that there's more. It's not just that sex is is for the function of, of recreation, but there's a second purpose. The second purpose is procreation. This is kind of obvious. You see this in uh, Genesis 1. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. It's to make babies. It's to make little images of God. If you think about it, sex is insane. Sex is not only this enjoyable, kind of mysterious, sacred thing that you do, but it's like life comes out of it. Like human beings get like created from it. It's insane. That's the second purpose. That's kind of obvious. Let's look at the third. Recreation, procreation, third one, unification. And this is, this is the purpose that I kind of want to camp on for the rest of this point here. The third purpose of sex is to, is to unify two people. And you see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see that? Sex is designed to deepen and to strengthen the unity, the oneness that a husband and wife already have with each other. Becoming one flesh, you know what that means? That means to become, to become to you, it means to become united to somebody in the entirety of their being. It's, it's you taking all of you, not just your body, but your, your being and uniting it to another person's being. When the Bible talks about sex being this unifying one flesh thing, it's not just, it's an intertwining of bodies. It's an intertwining of of lives. It's all that you are being hooked into all that somebody else is. It's not just about your bodies. It's about your being. And this is not just like religious Bible talk, by the way. This is scientific. I want to read you a quote. This is from Dr. Miriam Grossman, who's a Jewish doctor and counselor at UCLA. She wrote a book about sex on the college campus called Unprotected. And here's a quote from this book. She says, Neuroscientists have discovered that specific brain cells and chemicals are involved in attachment. Oxytocin is a hormone. It's a messenger sent from one organ to another with specific tasks. Oxytocin is sent from the brain to the uterus and breasts to induce labor and to let down milk. Not a surprise, then, that oxytocin is also involved with maternal attachment. 
But more relevant to my patients at this stage in their lives in college is that oxytocin is also released during sexual activity. And here's the, here's the quote that I think is the most meaningful. She says, could it be that the same chemical that flows through a woman's veins as she nurses her infant, promoting a powerful and selfless devotion, is also found in college women hooking up with men whose last intention is to bond? You hear what she's saying? She's saying when you have sex, God has made your body in such a way that there are chemicals that get released that attach you to the other person. Your brain is telling you, I'm attaching to this person in the same way a mother attaches to her child. You're uniting, you're bonding, you're attaching to that person. In fact, there was this um, kind of a weird movie that came out in, in 2001 with Tom Cruise. I don't know if I'd recommend it. It's called Vanilla Sky. And, and Tom Cruise plays this kind of hotshot playboy lawyer guy that's like, has sex with everybody, kind of promiscuous, and he's in this kind of sexual relationship with the character that Cameron Diaz plays. And uh, they're having this kind of casual hookup relationship, and he wants to cut it off because he wants to pursue a relationship with somebody else. And then Cameron Diaz confronts him, and there's this really intense scene, and she says this line to him. She says, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether or not you do. That's a pretty fascinating sentence. When you sleep with someone, your body is making a promise whether or not you you intended that. And what she is articulating is the same thing that the neuroscientists are saying, which is what the Bible has been saying all along, that sex is this unifying, attaching thing. It's not just you giving your body to somebody. In some ways, it's giving your being to somebody. You attach you bond, it creates a bond with somebody. And you can try to deny the reality all that you want, but that is what is happening inside of you spiritually and biologically. <clears throat> this is why I think um, when you have sex with someone and you part ways, either uh, you break up or you've just ho- hooked up for the night and they leave the next morning or whatever, when you have sex with somebody and for whatever reason you part ways, that's why it kind of feels like you've been lied to. Because what that person did is they told you one thing with their body, but then they told you another thing with their life. With their body, they told you, I am all yours. I'm giving all of me to all of you, and I want to bond, and I want to attach. But then when they leave, they're saying with their life, I don't want to bond, and I don't want to attach in any other real way. I just want to enjoy you, but I don't want to actually be committed to you in any real way. And that's why it feels like you've been lied to, because you have. This is also why it can be so hard to get over the person that you were kind of first sexually active with. Like for some of you, maybe the first time that you were sexually involved with someone, maybe not even going all the way, but at some level being sexually involved was like with somebody in high school. And here you are months later, years later, here you are in college, and maybe you can still be hung up on that person where it feels like I can't get over them. You still feel attached to them in some way. It's like your, your heart hasn't caught up to like reality yet. This is also why, by the way, sex within a dating relationship can be so devastating to the actual relationship. And here's why. Because uh, when you unite yourself to somebody sexually, you unite yourself to somebody, if you're dating them, that person has no legal or moral or social obligation to even text you back in the morning. 
And that feeling of like, I'm bonded to somebody that I have no real bond to, that creates feelings in you. And this is, why, this is where jealousy comes from. This is where possessiveness comes from. This is where obsessiveness comes from. I'm only thinking about this person. I only want this person. And then when you start mixing in feelings of guilt into that equation, you can feel trapped. And it can feel like we're in this dating relationship that I know is unhealthy. I know it's toxic, but I can't break up because I feel so guilty. I've given this person so much. And you're fighting all the time, and you're fighting all the time, and you don't know how to heal the relationship. And the only way that you know how to repair it is just through more sex, which repairs it for the short term. But, of course, that's the thing that's causing the guilt and the feelings and the findings in the first place. And the relationship is falling apart. This is why the Bible insists that marriage is the only safe and appropriate context for sex. It's not because it has a low view of sex. It actually because that it's such a high view of sex. The Bible recognizes this is such a powerful, uniting thing. To do this in any other context, it's damaging. It's painful. It creates chaos. We're going to talk more about marriage next week, but marriage basically is two people willing to stand up and make a public and permanent promise that you're going to love that person for the rest of your life till death do you part. And you stand up in front of God in front of a room full of witnesses and you say publicly, I am going to unite myself to this person in every way, legally, financially, socially, psychologically, spiritually, every way of my life, I'm promising to give to you. And so within the safety of that commitment, sex then functions as something that deepens and strengthens the unity Here's a person that I love. Here's a person I trust. Here's a person I know has given everything to me. And so sex then becomes this uniting thing. This is why Tim Keller calls sex a commitment apparatus. You're, you're gluing yourself deeper and deeper in love with that person. Outside of that safety, outside of that commitment, it introduces pain. It introduces damage. Context matters. If you think about um, a fire... We have a fire pit in our backyard. Every fall, we love with our kids gathering up all the fallen tree limbs, and we throw them in the fire, and we, we get out and kind of around our little fire pit, and we roast marshmallows and enjoy a glass of wine and kind of look up at the stars. And you know, fire, I mean, fire is just amazing. It's like it's hypnotizing. You look at it, and you're like, I don't understand where my brain just went. But like you're, the warmth of it, the light of it, it's amazing. Fire is awesome. But if I were to take that fire pit, and set it up in our living room, well, now you've, you're damaging the house. Here's this incredibly powerful thing, fire. In the right context, it brings life. In the wrong context, it brings damage. Sex is the same way. Sex is so powerful. It is this powerful, uniting thing that in the right context, marriage, it has the power to enrich you and transform you and actually deepen the bond that you have with the one that you love. And outside of that, it can create damage. So what do we do then? If you've been sexually active outside of marriage and you've, you have felt the damage of it, uh, what do you do if, if you're experiencing kind of ongoing sexual uh, sin and sexual snares where you just feel the damage accumulating day by day by day by day? Uh, is there any hope? for sexually broken people like me, or sexually broken people like you. And I want to say emphatically, yes. And that's why I want to end with this last point of talking about that, that there is good news here, that sex is a sign. Let me set up what I mean by that. 
About 25 years ago, there was a psychologist that did, his name was uh, Arthur Aaron, and he, and he had this idea, he was like, what if I can get two strangers to fall in love with each other? And that was his experiment 25 years ago. So what his experiment was is he brought strangers into a room, and he had them uh, answer 36 questions that he had prepared. So you start off with the first couple of questions, and it's kind of light, soft, shallow stuff. But as you get deeper and deeper into these questions, the more intense it gets and the more vulnerable you have to get with this person. So here's an example. Question early on in these 36 is, before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you will say and why? It's kind of interesting. Make somebody be a little vulnerable. Share with them kind of what they're nervous about or how they function. You get deeper into the list. Here's a question further down at the end. If you were going to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? And why haven't you told them? So you go through all these questions, and you, you know, by the time you get to question 36, you have disclosed a lot of information about yourself. And then here's how the experiment ends. You have to stare into each other's eyes without looking away for four minutes. <laughs> I don't think I've ever looked into my wife's eyes sustained for like more than eight seconds. <laughs> four minutes. So that's the experiment. You get two strangers in the room. You make them answer these questions. You make them stare into each other's eyes after four minutes. And after this experiment was done, two of the participants were married within six months. It's crazy. Complete strangers go to this experiment. Six months later, they get married. So 2015, a couple of years ago, there's a, there's a journalist of the New York, New York Times. She hears about this experiment that took place 25 years ago, and she thinks, that's kind of crazy. I kind of want to try it. So she grabs one of her coworkers, somebody that she's never really hung out before, kind of just a peer, just an acquaintance. She was kind of passing in the hallway or whatever, and she says, hey, will you do this experiment with me? He's like, sure, cool. So they go to a bar, they sit down, and they ask each other these 36 questions. You can find these questions online, by the way, if you want to try this. <laughs> they ask each other these 36 questions. They leave the bar, they go out to a bridge, and they stare into each other's eyes for four minutes without looking away. <laughs> I made eye contact for one second. I, I had to look away. Um, and she writes this article about this experience because she married the guy. I mean, this is like crazy Harry Potter stuff. Like, this, it works. The name of the article is, quote, to fall in love with anyone, do this. And it's, it's that experiment. But here's why I talk about this. I, I was thinking about this and I thought, what is it about that experiment that works? What is it that actually is drawing people together? And I think here's what it is. I think here's the kind of secret behind the experiment. It gives somebody an experience of two things. On the one hand, it gives somebody an experience of somebody seeing everything about you. I mean, you don't have an opportunity to be shallow in those kind of, with those kind of questions. You are disclosing some of the most vulnerable, intimate parts of your heart, and you're putting them out there to that person. Somebody sees you, and then here's the second thing you get to experience. Somebody that doesn't look away in disgust, but they actually look at you, and they refuse to leave you. Somebody sees you for who you are, and they lock eyes with you, and they communicate to you, I'm here, and I'm not leaving and I'm not grossed out, and I'm not rejecting you. 
you experience that with somebody, of course you want to marry them. Of course you do. Somebody to see the depths of your soul and for them to not look away. When I say that sex is a sign, I mean that sex is like a road sign. It's pointing to something beyond itself. What is it pointing to? It is pointing to that reality. It is pointing to the possibility of being completely seen, of being completely known and loved at the same time. Look at the last verse here, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Can you imagine that? I mean, Adam and Eve got to experience being completely naked with somebody else and to not be ashamed, completely vulnerable, nothing else to hide behind, physically, emotionally, this is who I am, and no shame, no fear of rejection, no uh, worry that you're going to leave. That is the thing that we are craving so badly in sex. That experience. Because you know what sex is? Sex is a physical embodiment of that experience. Sex is you being completely naked, completely vulnerable, not just physically, but also emotionally. This is, this is who I am. And for that person to not just not be disgusted, but to actually look at you with desire and delight, to move towards you and wanting to embrace you and love you. The reason why some of us want to have sex so badly is not just because of our hormones. Sex has less to do with our hormones. It has more to do with our heart. We are craving for somebody to know us and to see us for all, of who, for all that we are and to not run away but actually move towards us with delight and acceptance and love. And sex is that experience in bodily form. That's why sex is pointed to something beyond itself. G.K. Chesterton once said this, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You know what he's saying? He's saying every time that you go into a prostitute, every time you're wanting sex, every time you have that sensation, you know what you're really wanting? You're wanting God. (laughs) Underneath that feeling, you want the experience of what it would look like to have somebody know you to the core of your being and to not reject you and to not be disgusted with you, but actually to desire you and to want you. That's why sex is a sign. It points to something more glorious than itself. It points to how God actually relates to you. When God looks at us and he sees us for who we really are, what does he see? He sees the depths of our sexual failure. He sees the depths of our sexual shame. He sees our ongoing addiction to porn and sexual struggles. He sees our sexual failures. He sees our sexual fantasies. He sees our secret lives. He sees the ways that we have sexually sinned against other people. He sees the way that other people have sexually sinned against us. He sees all of it. And here's what's crazy. Not only does he run and hide, not only does he not run and hide in disgust, but he moves towards you with desire and delight that he finds you so precious and so infinitely valuable, he's willing to give up everything, even his own son, in order to get you. The reason why that doesn't resonate with us is because we are so used to shaming ourselves and hating ourselves. When we experience our sexual struggles and our sexual failures, we are so used to rejecting us. We tell us we are uh, damaged goods. We are perverts. We are worthless. 
Nobody would love us. Nobody would ever want to date us if they knew who we really were. And so when you hear about a guy that actually doesn't shame you and doesn't reject you, but desires you and wants you, it feels like a fairy tale. It doesn't feel like it feels like it's too good to be true. But this is why the Bible says the gospel is good news. It's good. God cares so much for you to know that he loves you, that he sent his son like historically into time and space. Like you can read about Jesus in your history class. There was a man named Jesus that came and he lived this earth and he was crucified on a cross. Why? Because God wanted you to know empirically that he loves you, that he came for you, that he was willing to take all of your sin and all of your shame upon himself so that you wouldn't have to. He would find you so precious and so meaningful that he literally would give up everything in order to get you. And here's the thing. I'll end with this. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in John chapter 4 when Jesus has this encounter with a woman that's basically a sex addict. I mean, she's gone from guy to guy to guy to guy, and she's currently living with her boyfriend and sleeping with him. And Jesus comes up to her, and they have this conversation, and Jesus does not lecture her. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't shame her. He just gently listens. And he lovingly engages her and asks questions, and he's with her. And after this conversation, something is so profound that happens inside of her heart. She runs back into the village, and here's what she says in John 4. She says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. You know what she's saying? She's saying, come and see a guy that saw me to the bottom, and he didn't leave. Come and see a man that saw all of my sexual failures, and he did not turn away in disgust, but he stayed That experience of being known and loved was so transformative to her. Here's the thing. If the gospel is true, and it is, this means that if you are united to Jesus by faith, your sexual sin doesn't define you anymore. Your sexual struggles, your sexual addiction, your sexual failures don't define you anymore. What does define you is his love for you. You are one that is loved I don't know what this talk tonight has done inside of you. I don't know if it's turned up like a shame knob inside of your soul. If it has, I I don't want that to happen. I want you to turn up the volume as loud as you can and hear it in both ears that you are loved, that there is grace for sexually broken people like you and sexually broken people like me. If the gospel is true, that means you are fully known and fully forgiven and fully loved. And here's the other thing. If the gospel is true, and it is, this means that if you are in Christ, you have the resources available to you to fight your sexual temptations. You are a new creation in Christ. It doesn't always feel like it. I get it. But you have the resources. You have, spirit, you have Jesus within you to fight against the sexual sin, and you also have endless grace for when you lose those fights. The gospel is that good. Sex is a gift, which means it's not dirty and it's not bad. Sex has a purpose. It it, it is intended to unite husband and wife together and to form and bond their commitment even more, which means sex is not meaningless. It's incredibly powerful. And sex is a sign. It is not ultimate, but it points to something beyond itself, namely to the gospel. Only in Jesus can you experience what your soul really craves, and that is to be naked and to be unashamed. And that is available for you in Jesus.
Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would meet us in our guilt, in our shame, in our brokenness, in our confusion, in our questions, in our anger, in our loneliness, in our sadness. And you would help us to know that you see us and that you know us and you have not abandoned us and you have not forsaken us, but you actually move towards us in joy, with delight and with desire because you love us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.